Straight Talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. Hello again, this is Jay Shapiro. Thanks for listening. A terrible thing happened in Turkey two weeks ago, an earthquake, and it's a warning for Israel. Israel has, on the eastern part of Israel, separating us from Jordan and Syria, there's a rift. The Dead Sea is a lake located in the Jordan Rift Valley, which is a geographic feat. Dead Sea Transform, this left lateral moving transform fault moves along a tectonic plane boundary between the African plate and the Arabian plate. Now, that's what it says in the dictionary. But let me say what it really means. There are plates in the earth, and it turns out that two of these plates, these tectonic plates, meet each other along the area of the Dead Sea. The entire eastern part of Israel is in this rift between two plates, which means that it's very possible that there can be a an earthquake when these tectonic plates move relative to each other. The last big earthquake happened in Israel about 100 years ago, and apparently these things happen every 100 years. So the the magnitude quakes that struck Turkey and Syria were felt a little bit in Israel. The magnitude was 7.5, which is big. It was a ripple effect that hit Israel that should serve as a warning. Israel should not only be rattled by what happened in Turkey and Syria, where the combined death toll has passed about 20,000, but Israel needs to take action. There were heartbreaking images coming from Turkey and Syria were impossible to ignore. The survivors of the massive earthquake shared the same haunted look. Even the children, too young to know what they had lost, that their loss would accompany them for the rest of their lives. In these pictures, they stared with the same glazed eyes. Israel, like many other countries, rushed to send search and rescue teams, medical personnel, and equipment to establish a field hospital and provide other assistance. The Israel was one of the first to do so. The Israel government, by the way, also immediately offered humanitarian aid to Syria, a country that has never renounced its hostility toward Israel. The scope of the disaster served as a leveler. Natural disasters don't stop at artificial borders, and neither should assistance. Beyond humanitarian aid, it would be wonderful if one day Israel and its neighbors in Lebanon and Syria could openly share life-saving technology and information. Experts talking to the local media here in Israel this week stressed that it's not a matter of if Israel is having for a big earthquake, but a question of when. It's unsettling, to say the least. The last one is back in 1925. Israel is always ready and willing to drop everything and rush to the scene of natural disasters. 
The problem is that Israel is less prepared to tackle a large-scale catastrophe here at home. But here too, particularly along the Jordan Valley, which is part of the Great Rift, communities have been built on shaky ground. The, uh, the, uh, it's interesting, tremors hit outside of Israel, but we feel them. The country still needs to do a lot more regarding construction and rescue services and recovery programs. Insurance companies refer to natural disasters as acts of God, but mortals can take measures to reduce the devastation and loss of life. In 2016, more than five years ago, the Knesset Foreign Affairs and Defense Committee was presented with a scenario in in which an earthquake in Israel would kill 7,000 people, seriously injure 8,600, destroy almost 30,000 buildings, and cause damage to an almost 300,000 beside, and leave 170,000 people homeless. This was presented to the Knesset Foreign Affairs Committee. Israel has a natural emergency authority, which is estimated that some 80,000 homes are at high risk in the event of an earthquake. These are mainly buildings that were built before regulations requiring earthquake resistance standards came into force here in Israel in the mid-1980s. Emergency services and hospitals and rescue teams themselves could be affected by a major earthquake along with essential infrastructure. I tremble to think what could happen with a quake to strike a major fuel or gas depot. Even the gas pipes that run under roads and residential buildings present a hidden but a very real danger. Mapping the sites most at risk does not itself solve the problem. Action has to be taken by the government. Existing structures need to be reinforced. The risks are particularly high in certain areas, those that are close to the the Dead Sea Rift. It's not only apartment buildings that collapse, older public buildings like schools and hospitals were not constructed in accordance with modern protective standards. We have a real problem. It's not enough to draw up regulations the regulations have to be enforced. Tragically, the reports that are now coming out of Turkey suggest that some buildings were toppled not so much by the earthquake as by corruption. In other words, building contractors would cut corners when it came to expensive safety measures. It happened in Turkey. Who, who knows how much of this has happened in Israel? There's something now in Israel called Tama 38, Tama, T-A-M-A 38. These are private projects in Israel for reinforcing or raising and reconstructing um, buildings. We see this taking place all over Jerusalem, for example. But they're not usually financially attractive in high-risk areas, but they're essential the government, our government, needs to understand the price that will be paid for ignoring this fact. So what happened was here in Israel this week that the prime minister 
instructed the National Security Council director to assess Israel's preparedness or lack of preparedness and the Knesset's uh, Internal Affairs Environmental Committee has called uh, an urgent meeting on the matter. The Knesset State Control Committee, the leader of that committee said there is no coordination today between the government ministries regarding preparation for earthquakes. Every city engineer decides the criteria for themselves. The central government shifts the issue to the local authorities because it's very easy and there's no money. I have demanded the urgent establishment of a government fund. The state controller told a group of uh, people this week visiting his office, instead of waiting for a commission of inquiry after a disaster, the government should act on pre-disaster preparedness. Now, the, um, the spectacular scenery of the Rift Valley marks the front lines of an area where over millennia tectonic plates have caused ge geological upheavals. If you, there are ruins, it's interesting, there are ruins in Beitshan, Tiberias, Safed, and Caesarea, their testimony of the subterranean turbulence. And a lot of these buildings that people come and visit, tourists come and see, were destroyed in earthquakes. Back in 1927, a 6.25 magnitude earthquake struck. From its epicenter in the northern Dead Sea region, it caused hundreds of fatalities and massive destruction in Jericho, Tiberias, Nablus, Hebron, Jerusalem, and other places. In 1927, they called it the Jericho Earthquake. Uh, there's also one in 1837. These are often treated as history rather than a warning of what could happen and the two coasts for comfort future. By the way, it's interesting. There is evidence of an earthquake in the Second Temple period, in the year 31, before the common area, in which apparently 30,000 people perished. The death toll today, when a country has a population of more than 9 million and large cities with skyscrapers, be worth. The, a whopper of a, uh, an earthquake uh, happened in November 1995. The epicenter was 100 kilometers south of Eilat. In other words, it wasn't in Israel. It was in the Red Sea. It was forgotten almost as soon as the dust had settled. So there was, there was a major earthquake along that rift, but the, the center of the earthquake was way below Israel, so it was pretty much forgotten. By the way, just last February, the Geological Survey of Israel unveiled a cutting-edge technology capable of sensing the first sign of a quake. And this would allow the Home Front Command to send out an alert within 10 seconds. The, uh, it's interesting, by the way, the system was given the name TRUA, T-R-U-A-A. And interestingly enough, uh, the, 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 I don't know whether you can say that the people, the planners had a sense of humor or a sense of history, but the word trua echoes the chauffeur's wake-up call on Rosh Hashanah. Now, it's hard to prepare the public 
for an emergency situation without spreading counterproductive panic. There's no need to hide under the table with your hands on your head unless you actually feel tremors. There are positive steps everyone can take. This week, the IDF Home Front Command and Israel Police reissued safety guidelines. Try to go outdoors, away from trees and electricity lines, or failing that, go to a rocket-proof shelter. Leave the door open, stand in the stairwell of a building, or as a last resort, take under on a piece of heavy furniture and protect your head with your hands. These advice given out just this week by the Home Front Command. And also, those in the vehicle should park the side of the road, wait inside until the earthquake stops, avoid stopping under a bridge or an interchange, stay at least one kilometer away from the beach in case there is a tsunami and head for high ground. At, make, at home, make sure shelves and paintings and other heavy objects are fixed to the walls firmly. Prepare emergency supplies of bottled water, canned food, old-fashioned battery-operated transistor radio, flashlights, spare batteries, warm clothing. It's interesting, by the way, uh, 30 years ago, when we were, we were afraid of incoming uh, rockets from uh, uh, Iraq, Iran at the time, uh, we we got uh, we got all prepared. We put aside a special room in the house for protection. We wore gas masks and everything else. So, but now the same thing has to be done. In the, in the, well, not so much gas masks, but same thing has to be done in, in the event of an earthquake. It's nobody's fault that we're sitting on a major fault line. This is the land that God gave us. We have to assume that God know knew what He was doing when He gave us this land. But we can't afford to ignore what it means in, terth, in both budget and planning requirements. The, the, uh, there's a, a biblical command that says, You should be very careful of your soul. It means, it means your body, too. It's no less important than a Talmudic precept, whoever saves one life is as if they saved the entire world. It's obvious, of course. We can't stop earthquakes occurring, but we can prevent some of their earth-shattering results. It's a lack of readiness that is really something that should be avoided. Israel has to prepare. What happened in Turkey is really a warning for us in Israel. I see various places in, build, in Jerusalem where they're, where they're building big signs put up that they're building according to this uh, Tama 38, uh, which is, uh, that's a name for those buildings that are prepared for earthquakes. But more has to be done. There, the uh, God forbid if an earthquake occurs in Israel, it could really be very fatal. And what happened in Turkey should be a warning to us. Incidentally, Israel was one of the very first to send a, um, a group there to help rescue people. And uh, I, spe I was speaking with one of those people responsible for civil defense here in Israel. And he told me that uh, the Israelis, at the very outset when the Israelis got there, 
they were able to say pull 25 people out of the out of the uh, out of, out of the uh, uh, earthquake uh, alive, and that's considered a very high number. What happened in uh, in Turkey is absolutely a tragedy, but it's also a warning for us that we really have to do make sure we're prepared because we're on the same rift, and the same thing, God forbid, could happen to us. So uh, hopefully the government is doing something about it and getting ready for it because apparently an earthquake is going to happen. The question is how prepared are we going to be? Hopefully we will be prepared. Now I want to s switch the subject and say a few words about anti-Semitism. There's always room for a few words. According to a recent released re annual report on anti-Semitism by the Diaspora Affairs Ministry, 2020 saw a marked increase of anti-Jewish hate incidents, both in Europe and America. Many were sparked by conspiracy theories connecting the state of Israel with the spread of the COVID-19. In other words, uh, anti-Semitism is not a new phenomenon. World, was, world War I was called the world to end all wars, and we know only too well that was a false hope under the, the Treaty of Versailles Versailles signed in 1919, Germany was subdued and humiliated, and the Germany was expected to assume all the guilt for starting World War One. She had to pay $33 billion in reparations to the Allies and cede territory. Her Navy and Air Force were dismantled, the Army reduced to less than 100,000 men. The League of Nations was established to oversee peace in the world. Germany's total population in 1920 was about 60 million. And the unemployment stood at six million, and uh, the, it was made up of disillusioned returning soldiers. So they started a stab in the back ledge and attributed their Germany and Austrian defeat, blaming the Jews for being traitors. It was believed, and um, it was it was spread around by the defeated German military leadership. And uh, in other words, they lost the war. They blamed it on the Jews. So they couldn't pay reparations. They had a financial crisis. The uh, people used to went shopping, carrying their money in suitcases. Things were really bad. They had to find somebody to blame, and they blamed the Jews. It was a conspiracy theory. So uh, the uh, it's interesting that the the the, um, the the Jews were blamed. The Weimar, uh, Weimar Republic existed from 1919 until 1993. Some 40 parties were represented in the German parliament, and there were general elections, and uh, the Nazis' propaganda depicted Weimar as, as a government run by Jews, Marxists, and Bolsheviks. And uh, when they came to power, they they uh, they said the Jews have stabbed them in the back, and uh, the uh, they claimed that the German army didn't lose World War One on the battlefield was betrayed by the civilians on the home front, especially the Jews. So the anti-Semitic instincts of the German army were revealed well before the stab in the back myth became the military's excuse for losing the war. People look for excuses to blame Jews, and that is happening now in many places. And uh, it's we always have to fear anti-Semitism, 
It is rising in the United States. It's rising in Europe also because of a lot of the tremendous influx of Muslims into Europe. And there's always a fear that when anything goes wrong, the Jews will be blamed. And now that they have a large Muslim population, and it becomes even easier to blame the Jews. So um, anti-Semitism in Germany was deep-rooted in the culture. It just has to be brought to the surface. And whenever things are tough, it is indeed brought to the surface. We really and truly have to keep an eye on anti-Semitism because it is growing in the Western world. And uh, it's something that is very frightening and it's something we must keep our eye on. And uh, when I see more information about put out by the various organizations devoted to, to uh, fighting anti-Semitism, I'll update myself and I'll update the listeners. It's, it's a, an important subject. I'll be back after the break. Warning. Take cover. The Jewish Truth Bomb is here. The show that will explode all the false narratives and fake news. Join host Lenny Goldberg each week as he wires the news together and detonates it through biblical verses that will deliver a shockwave that will blow you away. Don't miss it. The Jewish Truth Bomb. Every Monday. You're back again with Jay Shapiro. I want to say a few words about the Temple Mount here in Jerusalem. The Jordanians have allowed the Temple Mount to become a center of incitement and violence. Standing beside every world leader he possibly can, and when meeting Israel's prime ministers too, Jordanian King Abdullah defiantly declares his self-anointed custodianship over the Temple Mount and all the holy sites in Jerusalem. Truth of the matter is, there is no Jordanian custodianship or jurisdiction in Jerusalem. It's never been agreed upon by Israel. It does not exist in any international accord. All Israel acknowledges that the Hashemite kingdom of Jordan has a special role to play on the Temple Mount. Now, let's think for a moment into the responsibilities that devolve from a Jordanian special role at the Temple Mount. By the way, we call it Har Habayit in Hebrew, the Muslims call it Al-Haram Al-Sharif, or the Noble Sanctuary. One would think that having a special role would mean that Jordan has special responsibility to help maintain the site as a holy place of prayer, brotherhood, and tolerance. At a minimum, one would expect the Jordanians to do everything possible to help keep the peace by blocking attempts to turn the site into ground zero for violent Arab insurrection, wild Palestinian rioting, and the most anti-Semitic and genocidal anti-Israel incitement. Unfortunately, this is not true. 
The Jordanians have done no such thing. Despite their purported joint control over the area with the Palestinians, called the WAK, W-A-K-F, which is the Islamic Trust that runs the Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Dome of the Rock Shrine on Temple Mount, Jordan allows the WAK and its Palestinian preachers to insanely inflame nationalist passions and provoke hostilities against Israel right here in the heart of Jerusalem. They use Al-Aqsa Mosque as a base for physical assault on Israel. They store weapons there and use it as a platform for the ugliest education about the evil of Jews in Israel. It's become the Jordanian-sponsored standard of behavior on the Temple Mount. The, uh, th- th- this is how Jordan is using its special role. The uh, sheikh of the Al-Aska Mosque, the former chief mufti of the Palestinian Authority, often has used his Friday sermon pulpit on the Temple Mount to spout lies and historical distortions. For example, he preaches that the Arabs among the earliest peoples that settled in Jerusalem 7,500 years before the Christian era. There's no evidence of historical Jewish presence in this in the city. He also claims that the blessed Al-Aqsa Mosque is everything that surrounds the walls, whether roofed or not. In other words, they claim also the Western Wall. They constantly repeat the blood libel that Jews are trying to destroy Al-Aqsa Mosque. The, the, the all these lies are openly done on on every Friday, and in the schools in the Palestinian area. So uh, the railway call for something called Rebat, which is religious conflict over land claimed to be Islamic against any Jews who wish to visit or pray in the entire Temple Mount. The um, the this uh, this fellow also sermonized in the Mount. And any person who sells or mediates the sale of Jerusalem property to Jews will not be burned, will not be purified, will not be prayed for, and whoever in, interacts with them is a traitor. The, uh, there's something here in Israel called the Palestinian Media Watch, and what they do is they track what these people are saying, these um, leaders of the Islamic community are saying, and they translate these sermons into English. The... Um, and and we have on record what these people are saying, and uh, they rant regularly about the daily crimes that the occupation state Israel is committing against the Jerusalem Noble Sanctuary, and the escalation in the pace of the settlers' daily invasions in the mosque, and the desecration by Jews. They call for violent assaults against Jews, and. Uh, it, it really is terrible what is happening right here in Jerusalem. The, uh, they say things like the occupation is still making all efforts day and night to Judaize the city and the Al-Aqsa Mosque and defile it, and Muslims will have to purify this sanctuary, liberate the land from the Jews, and the Jews are criminal infidels. All, all the time, this is what's being said right here in Jerusalem. 
by spreading such libels and demonizing Israelis and Jews, the Palestinian Authority leaders are making sure Palestinians are ready to fight the evil ones, the Jews. They want to fight the state of Israel, any Jews who claim patrimony in Jerusalem. So the question we really have to ask ourselves, why is King Abdullah of Jordan party to these, these fictions and incitements to violence? Where is Jordan's moderating influence? Where does Abdullah's well-massaged image as a moderate find expression in management of the Temple Mount? The uh, it, it, Jordan claims a special role in all holy sites in Jerusalem, which in Jordanian propaganda includes Christian holy sites. Everybody in the world is now very, very worried about a third intifada erupting in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the, because the Ramadan holy month is coming. So where are Abdullah's efforts to prevent such an explosion? Judging by the type of violent rhetoric he allows to erupt the mouths of preachers on the mount that he presumptuously has custodianship over in some part of Sharp, a partnership with the Palestinian Authority, it turns out that King Abdullah isn't trying too hard to keep the tension down. Now, it's not like King Abdullah can't control things if he wanted to. That Not a single word of criticism against Abdullah is heard on the Temple Mount from any Palestinian preacher, just as not a single mild word of criticism against Abdullah is allowed out of the mouth of any sermonizer. Abdullah take an example he wanted to, if he wanted to, from the Emiratis. They exercised the tightest control over sermons given in mosques across the Emirates to make sure no radical Shiite or radical Sunni messing is heard and no criticism of the regime. No preacher in even the tiniest neighborhood mosque in the most remote location can deliver a Friday sermon without running it first through the Emirati Ministry of Religious Affairs. That's how things are done in the Emirates. They censor. This is how the Emiratis keep seditious Iranian and radical Islamic influences at bay. <coughs> no such censorship exists at the Temple Mount. This is the most sensitive, explosive, holy site in the world. And apparently everything goes, especially anti-Semitic and genocidal anti-Israel incitement under the allegedly benevolent and hypothetically moderate watch of King Abdullah of Jordan. It's very interesting. Israel saved King Abdullah and his, his father's uh, kingdom back in the early 1970s against the Palestinian uprising. In a sense, Israel is the protector of Jordan, and yet the king of Jordan makes no, has no hesitancy to speak against Israel and to allow what happens on the Temple Mount, where Jews are considered strangers who have to be wise. It's a very bad situation. Our government has allowed it, and apparently there's no foreseeable solution to this. So right here in the heart of Jerusalem, less than a mile away from where I live, 
there is a an enclave, the Temple Mount, that is controlled by the Jordanian king, and which Jews are allowed only come under certain certain conditions, and it's simply not fair. The, the mistakes were made by the Israeli government at the end of the Six Day War, and we are living now to suffer the consequences of these mistakes. These are the facts on the ground. I just wanted to make this uh, clear to the listeners that here in Jerusalem, our capital, we have no real control over the holiest spot in Judaism. That's a sad fact, but it remains a fact. I want to say a few words now about the, how the Americans misunderstand Palestinian Arabs. Um, a sustainable peace with the Palestinians must be based on their people and their leaders as they are, not as they are imagined through progressive eyes in the United States. Those who genuinely believe in a two-state or two-people solution that will not endanger Israel must deal with the facts in an unbiased manner. The Palestinians have simply not prepared their people for painful compromises needed to accept a Jewish state without a right of return and to sign an end of conflict agreement. That's difficult because progressive Americans advocate and defend Palestinian demands with zeal akin to an evangelical religion with the Israelis as the devil and the Palestinians as perpetual victims. For this crowd, it's all about settlements. Easier to portray Israel as the bully, avoiding the inconvenient truth that for too many Palestinians, the long-term crusade is to end the Jewish state one step at a time. President Biden says a two-state solution is the only path but is that a two-state solution as Americans and Israelis see it, or does it mean something very different the way Palestinians see it? Pressuring Israel to publicly accept America's interpretation of two states while not acknowledging the Palestinian Authority attitude have a completely different goal. In, in actuality, by the way, the Oslo Accords do not demand a two-state solution. Two states are not mentioned in the Oslo Accords. Oslo allows Israel and the Palestinians to negotiate whoever they want, or two states, three states, a confederation, whatever is agreed upon by the parties themselves. So the... Uh, the Biden administration's behind-the-scenes effort to urge the Palestinians to move toward the unity government is simply misses the point. The U.S. thinks that Abbas is a legitimate leader, but the Palestinian people have no confidence in him because of corruption and no elections for the last 15 years. Abbas is deeply unpopular with the Palestinian people. He's made many mistakes in including recanting on his promise for elections. He did this after he found the poll showed that he would lose. So in, instead of focus, focusing, the, the, the what's happening is the Palestinian leadership 
keeps going forward and paying people to be terrorists and so forth. The, by the way, it's interesting that uh, according to the experts who are involved, the Palestinian prisoners in Israeli jails don't express remorse. There's no potential rehabilitating them because from their perspective, they didn't do anything wrong. Their society empowers them to what they did. They, they don't see being put in jail as a blow to their status, as criminal prisoners do, but something that reinforces their status in the eyes of their society. And you go to jail as a terrorist and you and you get more popularity in the, in the Arab area. So many decisions in the Middle East are based on a Western perspective that undermines our ability to achieve results or even lower the flames. We project how we think in America and act with the Middle East societies, which are really tribal and clan-oriented. The same words heard by Israelis and Americans and Palestinians are understood differently. And what Palestinians say in English to, to Israel and to the Arab and Arabic to each other are different between night and day. The, Ar the Arabic language can have four different meanings for one word. It allows for ambiguity and leads to misunderstanding with Israelis and Americans who, whose international agreements are meant to be clearly understood by each party. It doesn't work in Arabic. This leads to misconceived analysis and decisions. Whether we're talking about how best to give humanitarian aid to Gaza without it falling into the hands of Hamas or a two-state solution, or how Palestinians respond to American appeasement, we expect Palestinian leadership and society to inter interpret our actions as we would if we were in their place. Like much of the Middle East, Palestinians think collectively, like tribes and clans. They're less attached to the nation states introduced over a hundred years ago by European colonial powers. Secular in the Muslim world means something very different than it does in the West. The, uh, the, 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 the um, Palestinian Authority has understood by the Democratic administration in Washington is not the same as is understood here. Minimizing the religious dimension of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict explains why presidents of both parties for the last half century who have offered peace plans have failed time and again. The American intention to reopen the Palestinian consulate in Jerusalem or find a way around the Taylor Force Act to transfer funds to support the Palestinian Authority financially misreads the situation will have the unintended consequence of hardening Palestinian positions. In the Middle East, what the Americans are doing is seen as weakness. For example, the Taylor Force Act prohibits funding of the Palestinian Authority that supports terrorism and rewards families. A new bill submitted by the progressive members of Congress highlights either naivete based on projecting a Western perspective on the Palestinians or perhaps real animosity to Israel. They, they talk about the Israeli occupation being the source of the conflict without mentioning the role of Palestinians. The uh, an American congressman named Khanna said, I believe there is space in American politics to be pro-Israel, pro-peace, and human rights progressive. 
hidden in the legislation is conditioning U.S. foreign aid to Israel, a euphemism to end support of Israel. It does not meet the progressive agenda. It includes boycotting Israel from disputed terrorism. Meanwhile, these activists, they forced the removal of Biden's commitment to replenish the defensive Iron Dome anti-missile system, which saves both Israeli and Palestinian lives. Oldest progressive legislation in the United States ignores the actual obstacles, which is the Palestinian Authority and Hamas corruption, demand for an unconditional return of descendants of refugees that would end the Jewish state, the security requirements of strategic death, and Israel's legitimate right to negotiate for disputed territory. Truth of the matter is, it's time for America to see Palestinians as they are, not as their progressive supporters romanticize them, especially if you ever want to make progress for peace while ensuring Israel's security, which is a vital U.S. national interest. It will be, begin with educating young people that a Jewish state must be accepted without nuance in all its Arabic meanings if they are to achieve their goal of an independent state. They don't want that. They want to destroy the Jewish state, and the politicians in America simply do not understand the goal of the Palestinian Authority and the Palestinians. That is one of our major problems and something we hope our government will stand up for us and not give in to the often innocent moves by the Americans. It helps the Arabs and helps the Palestinians without bringing us any closer to peace in this area. I'll be back after the break. Could drinking tea be the key to long life and good health? Could be if that tree is made from olive leaf extract. The olive tree regarded by many as Israel's national tree could be that key to long life and good health. Israeli researchers report that the olive leaf extract may act as a hypoglycemic agent, lowering high blood sugar levels often seen in human diabetic subjects. It's no coincidence that olive tree leaves have been widely used in traditional remedies in European and Mediterranean countries as extracts, herbal teas, and powder. Always check with your own doctor, but olive leaf extract may help reduce a person's risk of developing type 2 diabetes, improve cholesterol levels, lower blood pressure, and help with weight loss. For more information on the high-tech world today, visit IsraelTechTalk.com. With your INTR Tech Minute, I'm Bob Aiello. Hello again, you're back with Jay Shapiro. The first thing I want to speak about on this uh, portion of the program is a, a very critical thing that's happening now in Israel. Without going into the details, the, there are essentially uh, three parts of the government. There's the executive, there is the Congress, the legislative, and there's the Supreme Court. Now, in Israel, the uh, the executive is really part, in a sense, it's really part of the legislative because what happens is you, you, you have a president, but the president's a very separate thing in Israel. He doesn't have the power like a president in the United States. But uh, the from the majority parties, they choose a government, 
that ex essentially is the executive, the really part of the Knesset, which is the legislative. At any rate, what's happened over the last uh, 20 to 30 years is that the, the judicial uh, part of the government has taken on more and more power, and now the, the present government, the new right-wing government, is essentially trying to pass laws to reduce much of the power of the legislature. It's felt by many people that the, uh, the judicial, that is, has too much power, and also the judicial has a problem of, by the fact that it's really not elected by the people. The, it's a certain uh, committee that chooses who the judges will be, and it's sort of self-perpetuating. Uh, judges essentially choose other judges. It's a little bit complicated, and I don't want to uh, confuse the listeners, but there's a, a committee, I think it has nine people, who choose who the judges are going to be in this country. And a tremendous weight in this uh, committee is given to judges who already are sitting in judgment. So what the new law that they're trying to pass is to simply not to do away with the judicial portion, of course, heaven forbid. The idea is to reduce the power of the judicial branch of the government. And it's brought a tremendous amount of uh, feedback. And there is, there, at this moment, while I'm recording this program, there's a huge demonstration about two miles away from my house at the Knesset by people who do not want to see any changes made in the power of the judicial uh, branch. And as I said a moment ago, Slowly, over a period of years, under the high, the highest uh, court, the judgment, uh, Judge uh, Justice Barack, the court uh, assumed many powers that made it essentially a non-elected uh, part of the government having more power than it should. So those who agree with this, so those who don't agree, and it's really uh, bringing the country up to really a crisis that we have not experienced in many years, if ever. So no one is disputing the right to protest, but it's not possible and it's prohibited to call for violence or to act violently, call for civil disobedience or force a strike for many who do not want it. Uh, the prime minister spoke up and he said, uh, I quote what he said, he said, I wish to harshly criticize the calls to break the law for civil disobedience, intentional harm to the economy, and even use of weapons by those who oppose government policy. The government received the people's trust in the democratic election and received a clear mandate from the citizens of Israel no one is disputing the right to protest, but it's not possible uh, to have violence, to act violently, or to just call for civil disobedience. And he went on to argue, interestingly enough, that during the Gaza disengagement back in 2005, the right wing camp did not behave in the same way 
for, for example, and this is true, I remember this back in 2005. Back in the disengagement in 2005, people were actually thrown out of their homes. I remember those days quite clearly. I went down to Gaza. I was there for the for several days. I was covering the, the what was happening there as a newsman, and people were taken from their homes by the army. Their homes eventually were destroyed by the Arabs who took over them. It was really a very, very bad time. But nobody of those who were suffering said, I'm going to get up and leave the country. They were Israeli patriots, and they were opposed to what the government was doing, even throwing them out of their homes. Nobody said, I'm leaving the country. Now what's happening is, you have people who are opposed to some of the changes that the government wants to make, and they said they're going to leave the country. That's something I never heard back in those days when people actually thrown out of their homes. The important thing is you cannot cross red lines. You cannot have anarchy. The opposition leaders, incidentally, the head of the opposition parties, uh, made statements like, this is a state of emergency, we will not allow the destruction of the state of Israel. And they, they made it sound like the world is coming to an end. Uh, they really, I think they're overplaying their hands. Uh, that is the situ situation right now in Israel. And the, the question also comes up, what if the government says one thing, the court says the opposite, and the parliament, the Knesset, rejoins, rejoins that the government no longer need to abide by what the court says. That's a problem we're facing right now. It's a dilemma that most countries realize they never want to place their citizens into, into this kind of a problem because it's a sure recipe for democracy domestic disaster. For a country to operate and to work, a, a country must have a clear hierarchy, a clear chain of command, a clear set of rules regarding who has the final say on important issues. If a country does not have consent on this, then it is facing a constitutional crisis. Right now, unfortunately, that is a path that Israel is hurtling down much sooner than anyone imagined when our new government took over two months ago and its vague promises of judicial reform, uh, they had vague promises about judicial reform and they've been now, and the government has been now seven weeks old. The Knesset this week is expected to move forward on legislation that would block the High Court of Justice from being able to hear appeals against basic laws. And uh, this is happening just three weeks after the court ordered our Prime Minister to remove Ari Derry from his position as Health Minister because he, is, he has been convicted previously, he has spent time in jail, and the way the uh, government uh, said that the uh, 
prime minister should not appoint him. The reasoning was that, in their words, the appointment of Derry was extremely unreasonable because of Derry's criminal history. So, the to a court the court to use the expression extremely unreasonable is really an opinion. It's not something based on law. It's based on the justice's feeling about something. Now, I personally uh, agree with the justices. I think it is unreasonable for having a former jailbird to have a high position in the government. But that's not the point. The point is the court is basing it not on some written law, but on their own feeling. And this is why a lot of people want to see the wings of the, of the judges clipped. The uh, and, and and although the court ruled that Derry was unfit to serve, the Knesset is on the verge of passing a bill saying the courts can't rule on ministerial appointments. If this legislation passes, there will be all likelihood an appeal to the High Court, which will likely strike down the law. The government will then say that the court does not have the authority to do this, since the Knesset passed the law saying that the court can't rule on basic laws. That's the kind of thing we're getting into now. It's really a mishmash. So, and it's, the uh, question is, who has, in other words, the government, the, the, the government said that Derry can, can said that Derry can't serve. The court said he can't. The Knesset would likely uh, vote on this. The court will likely probably overturn the Knesset legislation. So the question you have to ask is, then what? Who has the upper hand? And that is the situation right now. The uh, the interesting, the the if this new judicial reform proposal passes, it will effectively cancel the power of the High Court of Justice to cancel decisions of the Knesset. So, for example, imagine that the government orders the Israeli army to demolish an illegal Palestinian structure in Area C, and the Palestinian petition the high court against the move. Imagine then the court rules in favor of the Palestinians and tells the government can't do this. But imagine then that the government replies the court no longer, as a result of judicial reform, has the right to overturn these decisions anymore. So what will happen? What will the army chief of staff do? Who will he listen to? This is absolutely a recipe for disaster. It really is. We have never had anything like this in Israel yet. But it's running ahead full speed. So uh, this, this law to reinstate Derry will come up for a vote this week. After I've uh, after I've uh, recorded this program, so I, I don't know what it's going to be. The uh, the problem is the, the breakdown of the long accepted legal chain of command in the country of a hierarchy agreed upon by all is is now becoming problematic. For example, um, for instance, uh, list of tensions. Of, develop between the defense minister and the finance minister because the finance minister is also a minister of the defense ministry. So what happened was the defense minister ordered the army 
to uh, uh, raise the uh, uh, unauthorized outpost, a Jewish outpost, and the uh, the other uh, cabinet member uh, said that they to how, to not to evacuate to halt the evacuation. Both of these uh, cabinet ministers gave orders, opposing orders to the army. So, so this this it ended up that the the minister who said that the army shouldn't do it boycotted the next cabinet meeting. So, so it, it, in other words, there was a two two different uh, ministers in the same government gave opposing orders to the army. The army listened to one and not the other. What will happen next time? So it's a question of who's in charge. The um, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a very tough situation, something that Israel has never had before. The, so did, did, this is the crisis we are now facing at this moment. And uh, the question of who sets policy should the police clamp the, the clamp down? Should the army clamp down in certain situations, or shouldn't they? The uh, what what happened was the uh, since two different ministers are giving two opposing orders, finally at the at the cabinet minister on Sunday, the prime minister said, "I call on the opposition to act responsibly as possible, to argue and to have ch- cattle uh, a dialogue." possible to suggest alternatives. It's necessary, but red lines cannot be crossed. Red lines have been crossed in recent days by extremist elements that have one goal, to intentionally bring about anarchy. And he's right. Some of what the opponents of the reformer are suggesting, like threats to use arms and calls for a civil rebellion, they cross red lines, they could lead to anarchy. But anarchy in this country will also be caused if the rules of the game are no longer clear. And it's unclear who is that who has the final say about things. Anarchy will occur when the when the rules of the game are no longer clear and it's unclear who as I said, who has the final say. The result if the police are put in a position of having to decide whose orders to follow. Those are the national security minister or the police commissioner. So uh, it's really a anarchy is, is facing us. If the army has to decide who to listen to, the high court or of justice or the government, this is a situation we are facing right now in Israel. It is a critical moment in our history, and hopefully cooler heads will prevail and this thing won't get out of hand. But it is indeed one of the most serious internal crises that Israel has faced since its founding. No two ways about it. <clears throat> now I'm going to change this subject for a moment. Completely change the subject, something which is interesting. And interesting. Back in 2005, uh, the uh, government imposed a disengagement and kicked a lot of Jews out of their homes. Now, Israel this week took a first small step toward the reversal of that disengagement law because the ministers in the present government approved the legislation that would pave the way to rebuild the the four northern 
Samaria settlements that were destroyed back in 2005. Of course, the Samaria Regional Council enthusiastically accepted what's happening. It's, it's a symbolic uh, change to the overall Gaza pullout back in which 21 settlements were evacuated. They were, as I said before, these were very disturbing times. But again, the interesting thing is that the right wing, the people who actually were thrown out of their homes, did not say they're going to leave the country. They protested peaceably. I remember being part of that protest. And the people said, all right, that's what the government did. We protested. We're certainly not going to leave the country. We're certainly not going to be violent. And now, while this, the possibility of violence is now facing us over the the, uh, the the change in the basic law that I mentioned at the beginning of this section of the program, we, we, the government is now trying to make up for what it did back in 2005. Right-wing politicians have pushed over the years to advance legislation, and the matter now moves to a preliminary reading in the Knesset, and will be followed by a Knesset committee discussions and three more readings in the plenum before the bill could be passed. At issue, what is the issue? The ability to rebuild four destroyed settlements in Samaria. Uh, all of which are in areas so isolated they're outside the parameters of former U.S. President Donald Trump's peace deal, which proposed for Israel to apply sovereignty to 30% of the West Bank. These sites are former settlements. They're considered to be in a closed military zone now, prohibited to Israeli civilians, and this new legislation, if passed, will lift this ban. So it's pretty much impossible to describe the excitement that comes uh, over this change. Uh, this was uh, the head of the Samaria Regional Council, a guy named Yossi Dagan, is one of the strongest advocates of this legislation. He himself it was one of the persons evacuated back in 2005. And, he, and I quote, he said, we expect the 2005 disengagement will be completely repealed and justice will be done. So uh, Knesset Foreign Affairs and Defense Committee Chairman Yuli Edelstein, one of the famous Refusenik, was among a small group of uh, Likud rebels who opposed the disengagement in 2005. And he's authored the new bill. And he said, this is poetic justice at least as far as northern Samaria is concerned. Maybe it'll foreshadow a possible return to Gaza. Who knows? By the way, the, our prime minister is under pressure from the United States not to allow unilateral steps in the West Bank, including the expansion of Israel's footprint in this region. The, uh, but on Sunday last week, Netanyahu risked angering the Biden administration so he could satisfy, satisfy members of his own party and his coalition. So uh, it, it, this is something now that uh, I personally, of course, uh, I live uh, I lived in Samaria for years. Of course, I'm in favor of doing away with that terrible legislation, but apparently it's not going to sit well with the American administration. So I just wanted to keep the listeners updated on some of the things that are happening now. I'll be back after the break. 
One minute of Torah. Nasevenishma, we will do and we will hear. This response of the Jewish people to accepting the laws of the Torah appears in our Torah portion Mishpatim, which means the laws. Most people want to know what they're getting into before signing a contract, but we Jews accepted with absolute faith that whatever God offers us is something that we want. We'll do it. But God doesn't want us to carry out the commandments with our limbs alone, serving him robotically with only a blind faith. Yes, this faith is the foundation, but our relationship doesn't stop there. God wants us to dedicate all of our faculties to him, including our mind and our heart. And that's why the Jews declare that after doing, we will hear. We will apply ourselves to learning, to understanding, to feeling, to connecting with what we're doing. We'll serve God with our intellect and emotion as well. The vital thing to remember is that acceptance and the doing must always come first. And that way, even if our minds and hearts haven't yet succeeded in connecting, we will still serve God steadily and faithfully. With your Ayn Tarman of Tarad, Zikavich. You're back with Jay Shapiro. As I was preparing my notes for this segment of the program, I came across an article in the Jerusalem Post, the English language newspaper, that so shocked me that I felt that I had to say a few words about it. The article was written by apparently an American Ole, I will not mention his name, but he said the following, I'm quoting now, I moved to Israel more than a decade ago out of a strong sense of Zionism. I served in the army, worked in high tech, paid my taxes. I was married here and started a family here. This country has been my home. I loved it and it loved me. Last week I received a WhatsApp from my commander calling me up for reserve duty in May. It was a routine message. I had received it multiple times a year since my discharge and I have always responded in the affirmative. Over the years, I have cumulatively spent many months away from my wife and child, proudly in the service of my country. This time, however, I told my commander that I would not serve, not in a military drill and not in an incoming war. I will not lend my tacit support to a country it allows basic human rights to be pulled away at the whim of a slim 61-seat Knesset majority. I hope that my brothers and sisters in arms join me. Unquote. I was absolutely disgusted by this article. I couldn't understand why the Jerusalem Post would print it. I came to this country more than 50 years ago when it was really a socialist country. It was terrible. There were things about this country, the way the, the, the wage system, the working hours, all kind of things were totally the opposite of what I had raised and known in the United States. I came here because it was Jewish country, and I came here because after 2,000 years, we have a Jewish country that we have to protect no matter who is in the government, no matter who is in the government. It's our country. Governments come, governments go. But it's a Jewish country, the first one in almost 2,000 years, and we must protect it. The very fact that the Jerusalem Post could push, push, uh, 
publish an article like it is simply mind-boggling to me. He's not going to serve because he doesn't like the politics. That is absolutely shameful. I won't even mention the name. I'll probably end up writing a letter to the editor about this, but I wanted to share my horror with the listeners at someone whose defense of this country is dependent upon who is in the government. That is shameful, and it's something that nobody should ever, ever even come across his mind, something like that. Now that I got it off my chest, I'll continue with the notes that I had for this segment of the program. The, the, uh, there's a big problem today. Uh, there are all kinds of demonstrations, thousands of people, tens of thousands of people are demonstrating against uh, a bill that's going to be uh, prepared in the Knesset to change or to reduce the strength of the Supreme Court. Now, uh, there, are all, there are all kind of articles, there's all kind of nuances here. Most of the people who are demonstrating, I'm sure, don't even, haven't read the bill. They don't know what it's about, but it's really splitting the country. The, um, the, the, uh, there are those who absolutely demand judicial reform and others who say that it will make mark the end of democracy in Israel. The, uh, I think that all of them have forgotten what a privilege it is to live here. And it goes also about the, the article that I mentioned a few minutes ago. For the first time in 2,000 years, we created a sovereign nation that is the envy of the world for its technical achievements, its staying power in the face of enemies around us who have been bent on our destruction for so many years. It is where our people are so confident about their future that Israel has the highest birth rate of any Western nation, bar none. Having such a record of achievement in the face of odds, to the contrary, it seems the best we can do now is tear ourselves apart internally about an issue that probably 80% of the population agrees needs addressing. Have we really sunk to the level of politics that everybody who disagrees with us is an enemy to be disenfranchised and belittled? Have we no ability to recognize when it comes to the topic of judicial reform there is a middle ground? Because there is a middle ground in every situation with our opposing viewpoints. Are we actually totally bereft of sufficiently intelligent people who can bring the sides together and hammer out a compromise that the majority can support? Do politicians on either side of this issue seriously want this agreement to end in a civil war with Jews fighting Jews? The, the mayor of uh, Tel Aviv said something terrible the other day uh, about Jews fighting Jews. I, won't, I, I hesitate even to repeat what he said, but he essentially called for a civil war. Listen, the fact is that this is the only, this is the, only the third time in the history of mankind that Jews have enjoyed sovereignty over this land. On both prior occasions, sovereignty lasted just 75 years, according to historians, and in two months from now, 
the modern state of Israel celebrate the 75th anniversary of its founding. So the challenge before us is whether we will get past this problem, this milestone, as the nation united in our commitment to the land and its values, or heaven forbid, go down the history books as the third unsuccessful try at sovereignty by the Jewish people in their homeland. Everyone, those who say they are for judicial reform and those who say they are against it, everyone knows. They know that there is no successful way forward for Israel without compromise. They know that we are alone. There is no one but ourselves to protect us. They know that compromise can be worked out that will be acceptable to the majority of Israelis, all of whom know that judicial reform is needed. They see already the social impact that's tearing the country apart and pushing people into us versus them categories. They know the potential economic impact on Israel's future growth if investors do not feel their investments are secure and protected. And they know that the lesson the last 75 years have taught us is that the only way to survive here is to band together in the face of those who even today remain committed to our ultimate destruction. It would be a very sad day in Jewish history if we were to fall by our own sword and give our enemies the victory they desire by their own desire to be right rather than usual. Israel is the fulfillment of 2,000 years of dreaming coupled with a commitment to make that dream a reality. We dare not be guilty, again, of letting that reality slip out of our grasp. Should we let that happen, the stain will be ours to bear for generations to come. It is a tough time. We have to compromise, and I'm sure that we will. It's a terrible thing that after 75 years, we've reached a point where people are willing to destroy the country, not go and do their military service because they don't agree with the government. That is a, simply a no-no. Nothing like that should ever be envisioned, let alone spoken about. Now, I want to change the subject after I got that off my mind. I want to say a few words about a subject doesn't go away, but there is some new information about it. And I'm talking about uh, uh, anti-Semitism. 41% of American Jews say that their status in the United States is less secure than it was a year ago. This is according to the American Jewish Community State of Anti-Semitism America report for 2022. In the, in the 2021 report, 31% say they didn't feel safe. Now 41%, so it went up 10%. This is the fourth annual report that assesses and compares Jewish and general population perceptions and experience with anti-Semitism in the United States. An independent research firm conducted surveys which included interviews with samples of a little more than 1,500 Jews ages 18 and older and 1,000 responders from the general population, that is, non-Jews. The interviews were conducted over the phone and online 
the margin of error was about three and a half percent. Now, that's the background. What did the survey, survey found? They found that 38% of all Jewish respondents report they have altered their behavior at least once in the past year due to fears of anti-Semitism. For example, 27% avoided posting content online that will enable others to identify them as Jewish or reveal their views on Jewish issues, and 23% avoided wearing or displaying things that may enable others to identify them as Jewish. About 16% avoided certain places, certain events, or situations due to concerns about their safety or comfort as Jews. The uh, the the head of the uh, American Jewish Committee, the CEO, a guy named Ted Deutsch, who used to be a congressman from uh, Florida. I met him on several occasions when he was a congressman. He left Congress now to take over the American Jewish Committee, and he is quoted as saying, no Jew in the United States, especially the younger generation, should ever feel unsafe for expressing their Jewish identity. Yet rising anti-Semitism is having a deeply disturbing effect on American Jews and on American society in general. We look forward to working with the White House and developing effective strategies for a whole-of-government approach to combat Jew hatred once and for all, unquote. To combat Jew hatred once and for all, I think, is uh, wishful thinking. Jew hatred's been around since there are Jews, and we can hope to reduce it in various ways. The idea of eliminating it is simply not realistic. Four out of five Jews believe that anti-Semitism has increased over the past five years, according to this survey. And the major source of anti-Semitism today, something that didn't exist even five years ago, are online platforms. Overall, almost 70% of American Jews experienced anti-Semitism online, either as a target by seeing anti-Semitic content. Uh, all this is in the last uh, 12 months. 26% of Jews say they were the target of anti-Semitism in 2022, including 20% who reported being the target of anti-Semitic remarks in person, and 13% who were targeted online uh, or on social media. So social media, me, media is now a new conduit for anti-Semitism, something that didn't exist years ago. Meanwhile, there is a growing recognition that anti-Semitism is not just a problem for Jews to deal with. Nine out of ten responders uh, in this uh, in this, uh, in this uh, survey that was taken by the American Jewish community, um, nine out of ten uh, responders were surveyed agree that anti-Semitism affects American society as a whole. On the other hand, both groups were less aligned when asked whether anti-Semitism was taken less seriously than other forms of hate and bigotry. About 48% of Jews believed that this was the case, 
that anti-Semitism is taken less seriously than other forms of hate. And 34% of the general, <coughs> excuse me, 34% of the general population say say that anti-Semitism is taken less serious, less seriously than other forms of hate. Now, since I said a few words about anti-Semitism in the United States, uh, it's interesting to see what's happening as far as anti-Semitism is, uh, is concerned in the United Kingdom. Uh, Anti-Semitic incidents in Britain last year fell by more than a quarter from the record high in 2021. But an increasing number of children are becoming victims of hatred. The annual report by the Community Security Trust, which advises Britain's Jews on security matters, uh, recorded 1,652 anti-Semitic incidents in 2022, down about 27% from previous years. There are, uh, there is an estimated number of uh, 280,000 Jews uh, um, who, who are known to be Jewish in the, uh, in the, in the United Kingdom. And they were surveyed on the security matters. Each month, they, the uh, CSI, the Community Security Trust, uh, receives well over a hundred reports of anti-Jewish hatred. It look, this is what uh, everyday anti-Semitism now looks like without any particular trigger event, whether domestic or overseas. In other words, anti-Semites don't wait for Israel or the Jewish people to do something to be anti-Semitic. They seem to have... Uh, and they've nurtured anti-Semitism in their mother's milk. Apparently, the 2021 record number was fueled by a reaction to a rise in violence in Israel and Gaza. And the uh, whatever happens in Israel, you get all kind of uh, responses. There is a, a, a reduction in the number of anti-Semitic incidents recorded but as a sobering reminder that anti-Semitism continues to be a scourge on a British society, and the Home Secretary, uh, a woman named Suella Braverman, I don't know if she's Jewish or not, but she said anti-Semitism is a scourge in a society. We cannot be complacent. Anti-Semitism is here to stay. So every year there's organizations that, who make a living by doing these surveys on anti-Semitism. Uh, I really question whether all these surveys are needed every year. It gives a lot of uh, highly paid uh, Jewish professionals uh, a good salary. But um, I don't know if rise or fall of anti-Semitism really makes any difference in what the governments will do about it. Anti-Semitism exists. If it goes up 10%, it goes down percent, 10%, that really doesn't matter. It's here, it's been here since there have been Jews. We have to fight it. We have to do what we can to educate people about what anti-Semitism is. There's an old story which uh, I 
don't know the validity of it, but I, I it sounds like it's true that there were uh, Italians uh, when when Germany made an agreement with uh, Italy, Hitler and Mussolini made an agreement and cooperated with each other. One of the things that the Germans insisted on was that the uh, Italians treat the Jews differently than they treat other Italian citizens. And the story has it, I don't know if it's true or not, but it certainly makes sense. There are communities in uh, in Italy that wrote to the government and said to them, please let us know what a Jew looks like. We never saw one. There are places in many places in Europe that have never seen a Jew. And uh, so when you tell them they have to be anti-Semitic and mistreat the Jews, they have to know who the targets are. It sounds funny, but it's not. These are the, these are the facts of life. Unfortunately, anti-Semitism is here to stay. Uh, and I don't like to end my program on a sad note, but I'm ending it on a realistic note. Anti-Semitism is here. It's something that has to be fought or reduced as much as possible. Till next time, take care of yourself. Jay Shapiro signing off. Israel News Talk Radio's chat room. Just click the orange button at the top of the IsraelNewsTalkRadio.home page, log in as yourself or an anonymous guest, and join in on the fun. You'll meet other listeners from all over the world who listen to Israel News Talk Radio, and you can make new friends. Israel News Talk Radio's chat room. It's the closest you can get to being in the studio with us. We love listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Where can you get the inside news on Israel? At Israel News Talk Radio, we're dedicated to sharing Israel's inside story with the world by providing our listeners with news on Israeli politics, current affairs, and Israeli Jewish culture. The Israel News Talk Radio homepage also provides you, the listener, with useful information at your fingertips with scrolling news headlines, weather, currency exchange, Shabbat candle lighting times, and so much more. Our radio programming is always accessible and on demand. We operate absolutely free of charge for everyone, everywhere. If you love what we do, partner with us now by becoming an Israel News Talk Radio supporter. With your support, you'll be inscribed on our Israel News Talk Radio Wall of Fame. There's nothing like us in the world. Be part of something great. Israel News Talk Radio. Straight talk from Israel. If you love Israel News Talk Radio, then you'll love our Facebook page. We keep you up to date on what's happening in Israel. Plus, little surprise treasures that we don't share on the radio. Go now to follow us on Facebook. Just look for the Israel News Talk Radio Facebook page. And don't forget to subscribe and follow us by clicking on the like button. We post great stuff there that you'll want to share. Israel News Talk Radio on Facebook and Israel News Radio on Twitter. News, opinion, and more. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. 